0: You are listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Rachel O'Reilly. 2004 started out just as any other morning had in the O'Reilly household. Joe O'Reilly got out of bed and went to work as Rachel slept. Soon Rachel, too, was up and getting their two little boys ready for their day in creche and at school. She dropped them off that morning, but she would never return to pick them up. Joe O'Reilly Jr. was born to parents Joe Sr. and Anne O'Reilly on the 6th of April 1972. He was the second of four children with one brother and two sisters. His parents had met at a city centre dance hall in Camden Street. They were both from Drimna, a south side neighbourhood close to Dublin city centre, but they moved to Kilbarrack, a working class suburb in North County Dublin, where the children went to the local secondary school. Joe was the tallest of the four children and would eventually end up being six foot five. He took a leadership role in the family. When he was sitting his final exams in school, his parents' marriage began to fall apart though and Joe Sr. moved to England, maintaining contact with his children on the phone. Joe Jr. would visit his father only once to introduce his fiancée to him. Rachel O'Reilly began life as Teresa Green in October of 1973. Her mother was a 17-year-old Dublin girl of the same name and Rachel was given up for adoption to the Callaly family. Her parents were Jim and Rose Callaly, and she became Rachel Callaly. She had joined a growing family of two boys and later Jim and Rose adopted another boy and another girl. They lived in a working class suburb on the north side of Dublin City. Jim was a plumber and like many families in the 1980s they moved abroad to Australia. Rose didn't settle however and they soon returned home. Jim was a keen cyclist and Rachel took after him, joining various sports clubs in her secondary school. She played basketball and field hockey, took gymnastics and went swimming. With so many adopted children, the Callalees were quite open with them about their adoptions and when Rachel turned 18 she contacted the Irish Adoption Board to tell them that she would be interested in making contact with her birth mother. Her birth mother had married and Rachel had two half-brothers and two half-sisters. Rachel would visit them in Clondalkin on the south side of Dublin City, but their relationship fizzled out in Rachel's twenties. Rachel first met Joe O'Reilly when she was 17, and they were both working in Arnott's, a high-end department store in Dublin City Centre. Joe was 19 at the time and was working in the stock rooms. He noticed her because she was so tall, nearly six foot, and most women he knew were on the shorter side of things. Joe pursued Rachel. He overheard her talking about softball practice and decided to turn up there to get to know her better. The first time he went, she wasn't there, but he went the next time and asked her out. Eventually, after going out for a while, their relationship became more serious. They were both tall and athletic and enjoyed sports. They were from similar backgrounds. They seemed well-matched and they began saving for their future together. In the spring of 1994, Joe proposed to Rachel at the Eiffel Tower, and when they returned to Dublin, they went to an upmarket jewellery shop, Weir's, to buy an engagement ring. Two years later, they bought their first home together in Santry, Dublin. The neighbourhood was a working-class suburb, just like the towns that they had both grown up in, and was not too far from Rachel's parents' home. A year later, In April of 1997, Joe and Rachel were married. They had a big Irish wedding where no expense was spared and they spent the following two weeks on safari in Kenya for their honeymoon. Joe had moved on from Arneth's and was now working his way into the managerial levels at a software company while Rachel was working at a solicitor's office. They saved for their future and socialised with their friends. Though while Rachel was known to have a couple of glasses of wine with her friends and was considered to be the life and soul of the party, Joe was decidedly quieter and didn't drink. In March of 2000, their first son was born, followed less than two years later, in October of 2001, by their second son. Just after this, Joe landed a good job with an outdoor advertising company. He managed 26 employees and was in charge of putting billboards on buses or in train stations. He travelled a lot for work as he had to check that the advertisements were displayed properly on the sites and vehicles. It was around this time Joe would start to take overnight trips for work. In 2003, the O'Reillys decided that they needed to move further out of the city to raise the boys. Joe said that he was too busy to go house hunting with Rachel and so she went on her own to scout out areas that her father had cycled through in North County, Dublin. Eventually she settled on the village of the Knoll, which is a small village in the northernmost part of Dublin County on the Meath border. It's quiet and rural, and they thought it would be a great place to raise their children. Rachel eventually found a three-bedroom bungalow called Lambay View near the Knoll village. It was up a hill near an old quarry site. You could just about see the sea, and it had a huge garden. Though the house needed a bit of updating, she thought it was perfect for their family, and brought Joe out to see it. He agreed with her, and they put in an offer for the house. The sale went through quickly, and Rachel set about meeting her neighbors and threw a barbecue shortly after moving in to do just that. She sold Avon and Tupperware in the community and took part in a failed campaign against the erection of a telephone mast nearby the quarry site. Rachel re-established contact with her birth family when one of the sisters saw Joe at the gym and went over to him. She had the family up to the house in the knoll and she made regular plans with her birth mother and sister. Her brother, a carpenter by trade, helped with jobs around the house and stayed with them on occasion. Despite their apparent success and what looked to be their thriving family, Joe and Rachel's relationship was in trouble. Joe even took to sleeping in the spare room most of the time and spent more and more time away from home. Joe even went on a softball trip to Florida, missing Rachel's 30th birthday. Joe had made disparaging remarks about Rachel, calling her the dragon and yelling at her when she was on the softball field, He even cancelled the dinner that they had planned to make up for missing her birthday. Rachel was anonymously reported to the social services in June 2004 for allegedly being rough with her two boys and she was very upset at having to defend her parenting to them. By all accounts, her children loved her and she tried her best to be the perfect mother. By the end of the summer of 2004, tensions were beginning to show. The couple had had a huge argument in front of their friends at the house and Rachel suspected that Joe was having an affair. She told a friend that she was trying to make it work for the kids but later also said that she had given Joe an ultimatum. She called her friend Paula Carney on Friday the 1st of October 2004 and said that she was upset and depressed and putting on weight. She carried on with her weekend but a huge row erupted when she had apparently confronted Joe when she heard one of her kids mention, quote, Daddy's friend Nicky. Joe slept in the spare room that night. He got up at twenty to six that morning and went to the gym before going to work. Rachel got up and started to go about her daily business. The kids needed dropping off at school, and Rachel also had products to drop off at a neighbor's a few miles away. It was a cold, crisp morning, and she had some time before her older son would be collected by a friend and dropped off home. Rachel did the collections from school on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and her friend did the other three days. The baby would need to be picked up from creche at half twelve. She was seen dropping him off at the daycare that morning. The milkman saw her car in the drive at about 10am, which was normal. The closed curtains in the house, however, were not. When half-twelve rolled around and Rachel hadn't picked up her youngest from the Montessori school and had not left a message to say that she would be late, they called the O'Reilly home. But no one answered. The daycare teacher then called Joe on his mobile and explained the situation. He called his brother-in-law to see if Rachel had been by her parents' house, but there was no sign of her there. So Joe went to the crash and picked their youngest up. He tried getting Rachel on her mobile, but it kept going to voicemail. When Rachel's brother Anthony was speaking to Joe on the phone, Rachel's mother Rose was in the kitchen. She got a sinking feeling that something was wrong. She tried calling the house and Rachel's mobile, but there was still no answer, so she jumped in her car and drove the 20 minutes or so to Lambay View. Rachel's car was parked at the end of the drive, where it normally was. She noticed that the curtains were drawn, and she went around to the patio doors to enter the house, as they never really used the front door. She first noticed that the tap was running. She called Rachel's name as she walked from room to room. Things were out of place. CDs and videos were strewn across the living room floor. When she looked into the master bedroom, she saw Rachel lying on the floor. There was a pool of thick, congealed blood surrounding her daughter's head. Rose knew she was dead and fell to the floor talking to Rachel, telling her she was going to be okay and rubbing her cold skin. She found Rachel's phone and pushed buttons on it until someone answered. She had no idea how to use it or who she was calling, just that she needed help. Thankfully, one of the neighbours had also been contacted to check in on the house and arrived shortly after Rose. Rose said to her, I think Rachel is dead, and brought her down to where Rachel lay in the doorway of her bedroom. The neighbour rang for the police. Next arrived Joe with the youngest, followed immediately by the friend who had picked up the older child. Rose met him in the drive and said that something had happened to Rachel. He ran into the house and found her and whispered, Rachel, what did you do? He put his hands to his head. He was upset. They were joined by another of Rachel's friends, who Joe had rang in the hopes of finding Rachel. She was a nurse and went in to check for life signs from Rachel, but there were none. Rachel was cold and she couldn't turn her over. She had a large gash on her head. They all gathered in the kitchen and stood waiting for the emergency services. They were all in shock. Rachel's family began to arrive at the house, but the Gardee needed to preserve the scene, so they were eventually persuaded to head back to Glasnevin. Joe put the two little ones in his car and headed to his mother's home in Louth. There had been a spate of robberies in the area in recent times, and it was thought that this could have been what had happened to Rachel. Perhaps she had disturbed a gang who had broken into the house and had been attacked around 10am the morning of the crime. There was no suspicious DNA found on the scene, no suspicious fibres, no fingerprints. The house was a forensic black hole and there was nothing out of place there. The night before Rachel's funeral, there was a gathering in the Callalee house. Friends and neighbours got together to share food and stories and remember Rachel and to wonder at what exactly had happened to her on that Monday morning. Someone within the group suggested that they all write letters to Rachel, and that they be put in the coffin with her. They all agreed, and went about writing their goodbyes. The next day, those letters, and a packet of sneaky cigarettes, were put into Rachel's coffin, and Joe took to the pulpit in the church in Whitehall to deliver his eulogy. He spoke of how his children reminded him of Rachel. And the happiness that she brought him about her goals and life, and how she had achieved them before he sat down, he had a message for the person who had killed her that Rachel was at peace, that she would forgive them, and he hoped that Rachel would give him the strength to forgive the perpetrator some day too. But it was noted that Joe was acting odd at the funeral; he was chatting and laughing with the attendees, most put it down to shock. He made a statement to one person that he didn't know why the Gardie were looking for the murder weapon in the nearby fields. He said that more likely the killer would have put it in water to get rid of DNA and all that. Meanwhile the Gardie appealed for any taxi or hackney driver that was in the area to come forward to find out what they had seen that morning. The theory that burglars had panicked and killed Rachel was beginning to wear thin with them. If that was the case, then they had left 860 euro in a tin in the utility room and 400 euro from Rachel's purse behind them, and had just made a bit of a mess in the living room. The only things missing were a camera and a jewellery box, and they were found in a ditch not too far from the house the day after the murder. The Gardie felt that, given the nature of the attack on Rachel and the amount of blood in the house, there was no way the killer could have left without making a trail of blood behind him. It seemed that the killer must have calmly taken a shower after the attack and then disposed of the towels and the murder weapon somewhere away from the property. It was also discovered that, although Joe said he had been work all morning, the receptionist at his office hadn't seen him entering the building until noon that day and he had left again shortly after to pick up his son. When he was questioned shortly after the murder, Joe admitted that he and Rachel's relationship had been rocky, but stated that things were getting better. He point-blank denied having an affair. Twice. Finally, the third time it was put to him, he admitted that he had been seeing a co-worker, Nikki Pelly, for some time, but that he didn't want his family to know and that's why he hadn't said anything before. Joe went over his movements again with the guardie in detail. He left the house at 5.40 and went to the gym. He arrived at work and then at half nine he and a colleague went to a bus depot to carry out an inspection until half eleven. He arrived back at the office around twelve and left again shortly after one. Joe had an alibi. He was with his colleague, Derek Querny. Later that week after the funeral on the 11th joe with rachel's parents appeared on lunchtime television to appeal for any further information that would assist the gardie in their investigation they appeared again on television when they were interviewed live for the late late show on the 22nd of october the late late is one of the longest running talk shows of its kind and covers entertainment and current events joe and rose sat on the stage together but every time Joe spoke, Rose stared straight out into the audience and wouldn't look at him. The atmosphere was decidedly icy and a stark contrast to the week or so earlier. Joe seemed to some to actually be enjoying the attention. When Pat Kenny put the idea that most victims are likely killed by someone they know, Joe agreed. He said that he thought Rachel had known her killer. Why else would she have been in the very back of the house? And how else would someone who must have been covered in blood get away? If it was just random burglars, why would they bother killing her? It must have been someone she knew. He stated that everyone was a suspect, including himself, until the police found out what had happened to Rachel. By the end of the month, Crime Call had done a reconstruction of the events that led to Rachel's death, and Joe had given numerous interviews to the press. He had been forced to deny that he had had an affair, despite bringing Nicky Pelly to his son's birthday party at the end of that month. Nicky was a fit, blonde, and attractive woman in her thirties that Joe had met through work. They had struck up a relationship about six months before Rachel's death, at a work night out at the Barge pub. They started emailing each other, and then started to meet for lunch, and eventually they began a full-blown affair. Joe often stayed at her house up to twice a week, and introduced his sons to her. But Joe denied this in the press, despite his admission to Gardee. For a couple of weeks things went quiet, but then on the 16th of November, Nicky Pelly and Derek Quirney, Joe's colleague who had alibied him, were arrested. Though they were not suspects, they were held under section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act and were questioned in relation to withholding evidence during their previous interviews. The next day, Joe was arrested. It made it into the evening paper and he was released 12 hours later to a nosy crowd of people waiting outside the station. The same evening, Nicky Pelly and Derek Queerney were also released without charge. By December Joe had moved back into the house in the Knoll with his two sons and was seen dropping them to school. The Garda investigation continued and they thought that they were close to a breakthrough. They had taken over 700 witness statements and over 35 Garda had been working on the case and meeting daily to gather as much evidence as possible. A few days after Joe's release from custody it was revealed that the gardaí did indeed have evidence that might help to solve Rachel's murder they had analyzed the cell site data from Joe's phone and it placed him near to his home on the morning of the 4th of October and not in the city centre at the bus depot he had said he was at the gardaí were also looking at CCTV footage from the surrounding area Joe had a very unusual car, and they were trying to show that it had been seen in the knoll, and not in Broadstone, like he had said. But the investigation stalled. There were no further arrests, and Joe's family continued to stand by him. In March 2006, Joe and Nikki were arrested again. Nikki wasn't suspected of any crime, she was just in to answer questions that they had about texts and phone calls between her and Joe, on the morning of the murder. Both were again released without charge. The day they were released, Nicky's father called into Joe Duffy's Live Line, a popular lunchtime radio program which takes calls from the public, usually complaining about something. Mr Pelly said that the arrests had been very difficult for his family, but that Nicky was coping well and that they all believed in Joe's innocence. That same month, the Minister for Justice gave the guardie permission to exhume Rachel's body. This was very unusual. Such orders are quite rare, and the move was interpreted as a significant step towards solving the case by the media. The day after the exhumation, it was reported that a number of notes had been found in the grave with Rachel, and that one in particular had been brought back to the Garda Technical Bureau for further investigation. The rest had been placed back in the coffin and buried again with Rachel. The same day she was exhumed, the chief state pathologist Mary Cassidy revealed her findings that Rachel had died of blunt force trauma to the head, inhalation of blood, and had suffered a skull fracture and scalp lacerations. As time passed and little progress was made with solving Rachel's case, things weren't going well for Joe. Because of the media coverage he was instantly recognizable and in April of 2005 it was revealed that his position at the company was being merged with another and that he would have to reapply for his own job he was being made redundant in June 2006 a file was sent by the gardaí to the director of public prosecutions it would be up to the dpp to decide whether to bring charges against anyone and bring the case to trial On the second anniversary of Rachel's murder, there was still no signs of charges in her killing. The family held a vigil outside the house in the knoll, but Joe was nowhere to be seen throughout. They remembered Rachel as she was and said prayers and sang songs in her memory. Two days later, Rose and Rachel's sister Anne appeared again on The Late Late Show. They spoke about how much time had passed now and how they wanted justice for Rachel. On the 19th of October 2006, the DPP finally brought charges against Joe for the murder of his wife Rachel. His trial would begin in June of 2007. The trial was held in Court Number 2 of the Four Courts building. The new Criminal Courts of Justice had yet to be completed, so the large courtroom off the Round Hall in the old 19th century building was the stage for the trial. The courtroom was packed with family, friends, press and public when Joe O'Reilly arrived and took his seat. The prosecution's opening statement admitted that the case was circumstantial but according to them there was no doubt that Rachel had been murdered and when all the circumstantial evidence was seen together it would be proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Joe O'Reilly had had the means, motive and opportunity to kill his wife. On the very first day, it appeared as if the trial itself may have been in trouble. A juror, one of the nine men and three women selected and impaneled, had discussed the case and said that there were rumors circulating about the case in her workplace. It was possible that a new jury would have to be selected. Thankfully, there was a simple solution to this problem, and the judge simply dismissed that juror, and the trial went on. The first witness was a topographer who went over the maps of the areas involved in the case, and she was followed by a photographer from the Garda Technical Bureau who had taken pictures of the crime scene. He was then asked if he had taken any other photographs relevant to the case, and he described photographing the letter that had come from Rachel's coffin. A barrister for the prosecution team then read the letter in full to the court. It was the letter that Joe had written to Rachel. The letter outlined how he missed her and asked for her forgiveness. Throughout the recitation, Joe grew visibly red in the dock and appeared to wipe away tears. On the second day of the trial, Rose took the stand and described the events of the morning of October 4th. She remained composed as she described finding Rachel dead in her bedroom. Witnesses who saw Rachel drop off their youngest son at creche that morning were called, as well as the milkman who had seen the closed curtains. Her friend, Jackie, who had gone to the house when Joe rang to say Rachel was missing and wasn't answering her phone, described her relationship with Rachel and arriving at the scene in the knoll. She also went on to describe the state of the O'Reilly's marriage and what Rachel had told her about their relationship and how she said it had been under strain because Joe was never at home. A stream of witnesses took the stand recounting Joe's behaviour after Rachel's death. One woman, Naomi Gargan, told about how when Joe was picking up his boys from her house and she had complained of pains in her arms, Joe had responded that he had some dumbbells she could use. She was shocked because there had been speculation in the media that that was what had been used to strike Rachel. It didn't seem like an appropriate joke to her. There was another time that Joe had asked her to mind the boys while he met with his solicitor. Again, when he was picking the kids up, he told her that he was going to be arrested and questioned for 12 hours. Joe had warned her that the Gardaí were reading his text messages and saying that he was having an affair and that they might think that she was the one he was with. He felt he needed to warn her just in case they questioned her. She was horrified and told her husband that she had just been trying to do a good thing but that she didn't want to get involved in this mess. Paul, one of Rachel's brothers, recounted how he and Joe had had a conversation about a CCTV camera at the nearby quarry. Joe had said he hadn't known it was there, but if he had, he would have complained about it. Paul thought it odd that Joe objected to it, given that they took the boys up there for walks and it would have provided a sense of security. Fiona Slevin recounted how Joe had said that if he had committed the crime, he would have gotten rid of the murder weapon in water to destroy any DNA evidence. He'd made that statement at Rachel's funeral. The receptionist at Joe's work told about how Joe had arrived at the office at 12 and made himself a cup of coffee. She said that he had looked red and puffy and out of sorts when he arrived. It looked like he'd been crying. Guardi were called to give evidence regarding the crime scene, including the blood splatter that was found in the house. Some of Rachel's blood was found on the ceiling of the boy's bedroom and in the room that she was found dead. They described the sums of money that were found in the house and finding the bags of missing items, the camera and the bag of jewellery that had been placed next to the road, less than half a mile from the O'Reilly house. A forensic scientist testified that Rachel had suffered a prolonged and violent attack while she lay on the floor of her bedroom. A work colleague, Noel Paget, took the stand and told the court about how he'd been assigned to work the Broadstone Depot the morning of the 4th of October. He said that he saw neither Joe nor Derek Quirney that morning while he was there. A friend of Joe's, John Austin, recounted how Joe had told him that his marriage to Rachel was in difficulty and that Joe was thinking of leaving her. He also remembered a night that he had thrown a dinner party and he and his partner were joined by Joe and Nicky Pelly. Rachel's biological brother, Thomas Lowe, was questioned about blood that was found in the utility room of the house. It had been tested and it was his, and he said that he had cut himself while helping Rachel to put up a deck in the house the August before she was killed. He had gone to the utility room to bandage his hand and had dripped blood on the washing machine. He'd told Rachel, but she'd obviously not cleaned it up. The defence tried to insinuate that there was something suspicious about this, especially as Thomas hadn't informed the guardie of the incident until five months after Rachel's death. Thomas was questioned as to his whereabouts that morning, and he responded that he had been in bed until around half twelve. When asked if he had been around the O'Reilly home, he answered firmly that he was not. In the second week of the trial, it looked as if the whole enterprise was in danger of collapse yet again. A copy of the Book of Evidence had somehow made its way into the hands of the jury. This was a collection of witness statements and evidence, not all of which would have made its way into the trial. Mr Justice Barry White asked the jurors if any of them had read the documents. They all answered that they hadn't. After getting the agreement of the prosecution and the defense it was decided that the trial could continue. The state pathologist Mary Cassidy took the stand that week and described how Rachel had fought with her attacker before suffering severe blunt force trauma to the head. She also stated that it may have been some time after the attack before Rachel finally died and it was possible that she had lain unconscious for some hours before death occurred. There were also numerous friends and relatives who reported how Joe had brought them into the house and back to the master bedroom and told them vividly how the murder had occurred. They told, without the jury present, how Joe had brought them at various times to the bedroom and described how Rachel had been hit in the back of the head from behind and described how Joe had kneeled down, showing them how Rachel's killer had leant over her while she was on the floor to finish her off. In one version, Joe even described how the killer had gone to take a shower and wash off the blood, and had heard moaning, so returned to strike yet another blow to Rachel's head. All of this testimony was ruled inadmissible, however, as the judge felt it required no special knowledge on Joe's part. The jury never heard any of the multiple stories. Next, Gardee gave evidence of Joe's admission that he was having an affair with Nicky Pelly. They told about how he had often went to her house instead of going to the gym early in the morning before work, and that he often stayed at her house overnight, telling Rachel he was sleeping at the office. The only person who knew about the affair was Quirney, who had seen them together in a car once. The guardie told about how Joe had said that he had not seen Nicky the morning of the murder and had decided not to meet her for lunch that day as he had other plans. Joe's alibi with Querny in the Broadstone bus depot was then presented to court, but the prosecution presented mobile cell site evidence to counter this alibi. Calls and texts made to Joe's phone at the time he insisted he was at the Broadstone garage were routed through the towers at the Knoll. The first time Joe's phone had any activity even near the Broadstone depot was at 10.38, which was also an hour and 13 minutes after Kearney's phone was first used in that area. By comparing where Joe's phone had pinged and where Kearney's phone had pinged the same morning, the prosecution hoped to show that there was no way that the two were together, let alone in the depot at the same time. Detective Sergeant Gerald Kane described how Joe's emails had been downloaded from his employer's server. There were a number of personal emails between Joe and his sister Anne which discussed his relationship with Rachel. Joe spoke about leaving Rachel and said he feared losing custody of his sons if they were to separate. He called Rachel names and discussed how he was angry with the result of calling social services on Rachel. He thought she was rough with the kids but was angry that he was considered the secondary caregiver to the boys and Rachel was considered a wonderful mother. When Nicky Pelle took to the stand she told the court how she had initially downplayed her relationship with Joe because he had asked her to and having a relationship with her would have given Joe a motive to kill Rachel. A number of text messages between the two were read referring to the boys and Joe and Nicky as a family. It also emerged that Nicky wasn't Joe's only affair. He had had a short affair with a woman not long after the birth of his second child. He had also told her that his marriage was effectively over, but that he was worried about losing custody of his kids. However, Justice White ruled that this evidence should not be presented to the jury as too much time had passed between the affair and Rachel's death, and so this affair could not go towards motive. The messages left on the landline phone and on Rachel's mobile phone were played. They were from the Montessori school and Rachel's mother and Joe. He left messages saying that he was really worried and that she needed to get in touch with him. Quote, Rach, it's Joe. I've tried your number I don't know how many times and you're not answering. You're not in Jackie's or at your mother's. I am now really, really worried about you. Will you please call me? This is not funny. It's not like you. I'm actually worried. Please ring me. Another message that was played to the court was a bizarre one left on Rachel's message minder about a month after the murder. Joe called in the morning and left a message saying he was going about the morning routine, just as she had done the morning she died. It was long and rambling, and in it he stated that he missed her and couldn't live without her. The prosecution also presented evidence of Joe's distinctive car appearing on CCTV in the area of Murphy's Quarry on the morning of the murder. They showed the Fiat leaving Joe's office in Bluebell on the south side, and matched it to a Navy estate vehicle that travelled across the city and back up to the Knoll, and back again when Joe was supposedly at the Broadstone Depot. Though there was no way to conclusively prove that the Navy car was Joe's, by comparing the footage and the car in detail, the Gardie had decided that there was a moderate support for the conclusion that it was in fact the same car. The car was seen again approaching the house, around the time Joe returned to his house after collecting his son from crash. Gardie had driven the route from the quarry to the depot and testified that it took about 40 minutes in normal traffic conditions. After calling 144 witnesses, the prosecution rested. First up for the defence was Derek Quirney. He had been referred to over and over in the trial and now the jury would have a chance to hear from the man himself He said that he had met Joe at around 8am the morning of the murder as they needed to inspect work at the depot. Joe went ahead as Quirney had to do some work in the office first, arriving at Broadstone at about half nine. He saw Joe and then went to the depot foreman to inform him that he was there to inspect the buses. He checked a few buses and then met Joe at the back of the yard maybe 20 minutes later. The depot was split into two sections, the Fibsbury Yard and the Broadstone Yard. After going through the Fibsbury Yard with Joe, Derek went to the Broadstone Yard, and then met Joe again at half past ten. They finished off the inspection with the buses that had just come into the depot, and then they left the garage at around 11am. He described being totally shocked when he was arrested for withholding information. He conceded in those interviews when confronted with the mobile phone records that he could be wrong, but he said that that was how he remembered it. He said much the same thing under close questioning by the prosecuting counsel. He had called Joe at 9.25 and asked where he was. Joe had told him he was at the back of the Broadstone Depot, but Joe's phone had pinged the mast at the quarry near the knoll. Querny also admitted that he had covered for Joe about the affair with Nicky, but he insisted he would never cover for murder. The only other witness called by the defense was an old schoolmate of Joe's who said that he had seen him one morning outside the Broadstone Depot. All he could remember was that it was raining, though the morning of the murder was sunny, and he couldn't say what time it was precisely, or how Joe was dressed. In the closing speeches, the prosecution senior counsel brought the jury through the CCTV and the mobile phone evidence and the various witness statements and the lack of outside sources of forensic evidence, and said that it all tied together to form a strong case. Whoever had killed Rachel had taken his time and had cleaned himself up on the scene. This was no burglary; Joe was planning a future with Nicky Pelly, and he didn't want to lose custody of his children. Queerney had admitted that he could be wrong about the times on the morning of the murder and so all the evidence came together and pointed to one person being responsible for Rachel's death and that was her husband, Joe O'Reilly. Senior counsel for the defense said that calling his wife names and having an affair did not mean that O'Reilly had killed his wife. He warned that the decision that they made would be binding he questioned why the guards and the prosecution had been so insistent on trying to get Querny to change his story if the cell site evidence was so watertight. He argued that the prosecution's timeline would leave just 18 minutes for the murder to take place and for Joe to have showered and washed up before having to jump back into his car to make it back to Broadstone. Finally, Mr. Justice Barry White gave his instructions to the jury, and just after 3 pm, the jury retired to deliberate. They went until 7pm when the judge sent them off to a hotel for the night. The next day was a Saturday but the court still sat and was just as packed as it had been for the previous three weeks. At 6.40pm the verdict was in and the jury filed back into the courtroom. It had been ten hours and they had finally reached a decision. The courtroom erupted as the guilty verdict was read out and there were shouts and yells and crying. Joe and his family that were present showed no emotion and he was expressionless as he was sentenced to life, the mandatory sentence for murder in Ireland. It had taken nearly three years but finally Joe O'Reilly was taken to prison, convicted of the murder of Rachel. When Rose read her victim impact statement to the court, her dignified speech about how loved Rachel was and how much she would be missed was met with applause. Joe's family have stood by him and continue to maintain that there has been a miscarriage of justice. It may be that his mother Anne is quick to believe this because of what happened to her brother Christy who was in fact wrongfully convicted. Later in his appeal Joe would attempt to bring up the issue of the book of evidence in order to have his conviction quashed but the court of appeal agreed with the DPP that this was an abusive process as Joe and his legal team had been fully informed of the situation at the time and it therefore could not form the basis of an appeal. This was upheld at the Supreme Court level. Nikki Pelly remained in a relationship with Joe O'Reilly until his appeals came to an end in November of 2016, although she had been seen since then visiting Arbor Hill Prison, where Joe is held. Rachel O'Reilly never knew what was in store for her that Monday morning, but her husband Joe was eventually held accountable in a court of law for his heinous crime. His confidence that he would not be caught, and what can now be seen in his revelling in the attention that his wife's murder brought him, is what he is now most remembered for. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. Mens Rea is supported in part by our generous listeners on Patreon. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Pod to see how you can help out and check out the benefits of patronage, like podcast goodies and bonus content. Our theme music is Quinn song, First Dance, By Kevin McLeod. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.